So if you could, turn in your Bibles. If you have a Bible uh, on your phone or in front of you, turn your Bibles to Luke 23. If not, at the end of each row, there's a Bible, and it already has Luke 23 there. It should have the, where the piece of paper is. should be Luke 23. And I want to read to you verses 32 through 40 um, through 49, and then we want to go back and look at it. So Luke 23, verse 32 to 49. This is speaking, of course, of Jesus' crucifixion. It says, There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who was hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing, we are, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened. And the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Then the centurion saw that what had happened, and he glorified God, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together that, uh, to, to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned, but all of his acquaintances... And the, who, the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. It's a funny thing, isn't it? How when we suffer, it kind of reveals something about our character. I've had man flu all week. And having man flu, I want to be pampered. I want to be taken care of. I used my best sick face to get my kids to do my chores. It was my turn to cook or clean. It brings something out of us when we suffer. It, it, it reveals something. It doesn't necessarily cause something, but reveals something about us when we suffer. And what we see today in this text is we see three men, as well as the crowd watching them, who are being revealed through suffering. Something's coming out by what they're suffering. And it's interesting because Luke wants to make sure that we understand the scene really carefully. He tells us, that Jesus was crucified between two criminals. The word used for criminal there is a word that means they were thieves and murderers. They were muggers, basically. They're the kind of people that wouldn't just kind of go into your house when you were asleep and take your stuff. They'd wait till you're in a dark alley and they'd beat you to death and take your stuff. These were hardened criminals. 
Interesting, too, that he says that they, they were both this thing, and the indication there is that these guys were guilty of the same crime and possibly even partners together in the same crime. And it's interesting that these two criminals, they, they saw and heard all the same things. They heard Jesus say his sayings on the cross. There's a total of seven of these really important sayings that Jesus says uh, uh, as he's hanging on the cross. But Luke only records the first and the last of those sayings. But still, they heard all seven, the same sayings of Jesus on the cross. They heard the same mockery from the religious rulers. The same scorn from the soldiers. They experienced the same excruciating pain of crucifixion that Jesus experienced. And yet what we see happening is one chose to believe the crowd... And one chose to fear God. One chose to say, okay, yeah, the crowd's all mocking you. I might as well, on my last breath, mock you as well. Maybe it was his last grasp at some sort of connection with the rest of humanity. They seem to be cursing this guy between us. I'll curse him too. But then you see this other, and something happens to this other. He, he sees something about how Jesus suffers, and he chooses something else. He chooses the fear of God. And don't get me wrong, and this is really clear, the Bible is clear that we can choose the fear of God. Listen to this. In Joshua chapter 24 in the Old Testament, there's a time when they're about to enter into the, into the promised land, or they've entered, I'd say they've entered into the promised land, and Joshua is telling God's people, listen, you're tempted to worship other gods, but don't do it. He says, if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river, the gods of the Amorites in the land which you dwell. But as for me and my house, Joshua said, we will serve the Lord. And Proverbs chapter 1 says, plainly speaking of those who reject the wisdom of God, says they hated knowledge and they did not choose the fear of the Lord. Now this is important because as in the section we're looking at tonight, it's important that we see that, that Luke wants us to believe certain things. He wants to encourage us to believe certain things. And the first thing I think he wants us to encourage us to believe is that we have a choice. We have a choice. I think sometimes if we've gone to church for a while and we're wondering, wrestling with this Jesus stuff, and what do we believe we don't believe, it's like we're waiting for something to go zap and then go, oh, okay, it's happened to me. Now, sometimes it happens. There's a zap. Sometimes there is, but sometimes there's not. But there's always a choice. There's always a choice. We can choose to respond to what we see about Jesus. Interesting, you look at verse 40, when he says, do you not even fear God? He says to, to the other criminal, and, and, and just remember too, in case you don't know this, how incredibly difficult it is to speak while you're being crucified. Because physically, when someone's being crucified, there's a nail through this part of their wrist on either side, and there's a nail through both feet, and to sort of exhale... You, know, uh, you have to, you have to, pull, to inhale, you have to pull down so that you can actually then inhale, then exhale again. And so to say anything takes an excruciating amount of effort. In fact, the word excruciating comes from the Latin word that speaks of the cross, the crucifix. It means out of the cross. That's what the word excruciating means. And so when you see Jesus speaking, and even when the criminals speak, they, they're serious about what they say. Because it hurts deeply to say it. 
And so this criminal, pulling himself, says, do you not even fear God? Don't you understand we're under the same, you are under the same condemnation. You're going to die soon. You're going to face God is the idea. And it's interesting what he says in verse 41. He says, we indeed justly, for we've received the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Isn't this interesting? Two guys, possibly partners in crime, seeing the same things about Jesus, but one is he's making a choice, is also humbled by what he sees. He sees Jesus, he sees the, 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 the way he suffers, he sees the way he speaks, he sees the first saying he says on the cross, which we'll talk about toward the end. He sees this and he thinks to himself, this guy's innocent. And in seeing the innocence of the Lord, what does he know about himself? Man, I am definitely guilty. This isn't the first time this happened. Do you guys remember the time when Peter and, and his other fishermen buddies, they're fishing all night and Jesus comes along where they're fishing and he says to them, hey, how's the catch going? They're like, oh, we toil all night, we got nothing. He's like, why don't you toss your nets just on the other side of the boat? And Peter's like, uh, Lord, you preach, we'll fish, we know what we're doing. Okay, at your word, we'll do it. And they lowered their nets, and you guys remember what happens, right? They get such a catch, they can barely pull it into their boats. And they pull this catch into the boats, and what happens? As soon as they get to the, sh the shore, the Bible says this. In Luke chapter 5, Simon, when he saw this, when he saw the boat filling up with fish, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, I am a sinful man, O Lord. Why? One, because he recognized that when Jesus speaks, it's always truth. And when you ignore the truth, it just exposes your own sinfulness. There's something about the perfection of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus, the goodness of Jesus that makes us realize, man, we ain't him. We fall radical, radically short. And so this is another thing I think Luke wants us to believe. He wants us to believe our own guilt and Jesus' own innocence. This is what the scripture says about that. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, that's him, for the unrighteous, that's us, to bring us to God. This is what the cross wants us to understand. Listen, if you could save yourself, if you could be good enough, you would. But you can't, neither can I. We can't be good enough, which is why God sent his only begotten son, who is the good one, to die in our place. We need to believe our guilt, but more than that, his innocence. So then when, when this criminal says this, this criminal on the cross, he's coming to saving faith. He's seeing Jesus as he is. He says to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Think about this. This is amazing. It's amazing. This, this thief, this uneducated criminal, this, this person who, who has been ignoring the ways of God for at least most of his last period of his life, this guy, he sees Jesus, and when he sees Jesus, he recognizes something that he hadn't seen before. He recognizes that Jesus must be the king. The very thing that these guys were mocking him about. When, when the religious leader says, oh, hey, why don't you save yourself since you saved others? If you're the chosen one, i.e. the chosen one of God, God's chosen king, the Messiah. In fact, he could see it, it, it I think, very much on purpose 
that, that God sovereignly made sure that Jesus was between these two thieves so they could both see the sign over Jesus that said, this is the king of the Jews. And he saw the sign, and he saw the, the man Jesus and his character, and he thought, this is the king of the Jews. There's no mockery there. There's a recognition. He says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He recognizes not only is he the king, but that death can't keep him from being the king. Think about that. Is that amazing? It's especially amazing because we'll see this on Sunday, if you all want to come back on Sunday, that the disciples, even after the, he raised from the dead, thought, looks like Jesus, sounds like Jesus, but is that really Jesus? After they saw him risen from the dead. And yet this guy, before he sees Jesus risen from the dead, knows, you know what? You are the king of God. You're God's chosen king. And even death can't stop that. So Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is the most humble prayer you can pray, really. He's not saying, Lord, exalt me when you're in your kingdom. No, he's just saying, Lord, remember me. Just, just have mercy. Just have mercy. It's like he knew that the execution that he was experiencing, the judgment he was experiencing, the suffering he was experiencing wasn't nothing compared to what he would stand, experience standing before God's judgment, which he probably knew was coming through the Messiah. Lord, remember me. But also Jesus says to him, I love this, Jesus said, Assuredly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Here's what's interesting about that. A couple things. One is he says today. This is, they've only been crucified for a matter of hours at this point. I say only because crucifixion was designed in such a way that people would suffer for a long time. Usually it would take a day, two, maybe three days before they would actually die. It was designed to be an excruciating death. The Persians invented it, the Romans perfected it. It was a way to experience the most amount of pain for the longest time. And so they expected these criminals to be there. They would basically slowly die and suffer for several days. Yet Jesus says, today you'll be with, me, be with me in paradise. When he says today, he's saying, he's, he's declaring from the cross, I'm in control here. <laughs> I'm still in control. But it's also interesting that he says that he'll be with me in paradise. What do you think of when you think of paradise? I, I think of that Coldplay song, para, para. it's in my head every time I hear that song. Once you hear that song, that's what you think of. It's crazy. So I hear that Coldplay song in my head over and over again when I hear paradise. But you know what else I think of? You think of perfection. I don't know if you've ever had the kind of holiday where you really did think to yourself, I don't think it can get better than this. If you took your kids, that wasn't that time, I'm sure. But <laughs> if you've had a time where you went on holiday and you were there and it was just maybe just the, the kind of weather that you think is perfect and the kind of environment that was perfect and the people you're with, you're getting along perfectly, you're thinking this is as good as it can possibly get. We all have this sense, this longing for paradise. Interesting, because the word paradise, actually, it's a reference to Eden, as in the Garden of Eden. You know, the Bible begins with a garden, and the Bible ends with a garden. Because the idea of paradise is an idea of how God created us to be. God created us to be in paradise originally. We're the ones who messed that up. But God sent Christ uh, to this world so that he could fix us and prepare us for the fixing of the world that he's going to bring about. Interesting, he says, today you're going to be in the paradise. What that means is there's this idea that, hey, when you die, you're going to be right in the presence of God. Because this is the, the, the crucial thing. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. 
I want you to think about for a second the best possible place you can think of. Would you still want that place if Jesus wasn't there? Because paradise is about who you're with more than where it's at. And don't get me wrong. The way the book of Revelation describes this, this paradise that we're going to experience with God, it's going to be absolutely amazing. I do sometimes fantasize about how great it's going to be. But the greatest thing is going to be about it is that we're going to be with God himself. And Jesus is saying, listen, I'm telling you paradise because this is what describes what my kingdom is like. We see this in the book of Revelation. When Jesus is encouraging a church that's really suffering and struggling, he says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give him to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. He says, this is what you have looked forward to. I know it's tough to follow me, but follow me because this is what you have looked forward to. I love this. Now we know this is not what we earn because there's nothing that the thief on the cross could do to earn this, could he? It's a free gift. It's a free gift. See, Luke, I think, wants us to believe in the reality of God's kingdom. Christ was crucified so that we could recognize the reality of his kingdom. One that we could recognize as being in the kingdom of God. Now, the already part of that, we know that we're going to suffer like Christ suffered. It's going to be tough. But also, because we can have this great hope that Christ had that Christ offered, that Christ provided, that one day we're going to be with him in paradise. No more man flu. No more vanity. No more pride. No more injustice. No more bigotry. No more suffering. No more sorrow. No more death. Paradise. Believe in his kingdom. Lastly, Luke then describes what happens. It says now in verse 44. <coughs> now it was about the sixth hour. It's about noon. And there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun became darkened. Now we, there are some that want to say that this was a, a, a solar eclipse. But we know this happens at Passover. It's a full moon at Passover. It's impossible for there to be a solar eclipse. Luke is wanting us to know something happens supernatural. Now, you can look this up for yourself later on in, in um, Exodus chapter 10. If you read Exodus chapter 10, you'll see one of the judgments that God brings upon Egypt when he's going to deliver his people out of slavery in Egypt. He brings this darkness over the land. It's a picture of his judgment. And so Luke is connecting that. The gospel writers connect that to what happens at the cross. At the cross, what's happening is God's judgment. Think about that. Jesus, who was an innocent man is experiencing God's judgment. Now, what, what, what Luke wants us to understand, what the Gospels want us to understand, what the Holy Spirit wants us to understand, is that Jesus is, on the cross, absorbing God's judgment. If you hurt my feelings, and I say, I forgive you, I am choosing to absorb <coughs> your crime against me. It's usually not that hard. But the bigger the offense, the harder it is to absorb it, isn't it? So it's, it's difficult. It's, you know, if someone, if you, 
uh, are in a, in, a, in a dedicated relationship with somebody or you're married and that your spouse or your partner is unfaithful, that's hard to forgive. Not impossible. I'm sure there's some testimonies here. But it's hard. If you've been the victim of child abuse, that might be even harder to absorb. We can all think of things that you think there's no way someone can, can forgive that. I think about those who have suffered in some of the atrocities of war. How can they forgive the ones that have sinned against them? Because that kind of absorption of, of sin is just too heavy. Don't you know that Jesus, when he died, he was absorbing God's wrath that we should get. Every offense we've done against God, Christ absorbs that on the cross. Here's what this tells us. Listen, it tells us that we are forgiven. It's interesting, there's another picture here. It says in verse 46, I'm sorry, in verse 45, it says, Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. Mark's gospel says it was torn from top to bottom. Now, if you know anything about the temple, you know this is the place where the Jews would, <coughs> would go to worship. In the temple, there was this holy place where only the priests could go, and there was a veil between the holy place that was called the holiest of holies, and the holiest of holies was the place that only the high priest could go and only one time a year to make atonement for, for God's, the sins of God's people. That's the day where, in a sense, their sins were covered up until they could be absorbed, where forgiveness was offered. That is torn in two. Why? Because it's as if God's saying, God himself is saying, the Father is saying, nothing else needs to be done you can come right into the holiest of holies where God's presence will dwell. Nothing else needs to be done. In showing how Jesus was torn himself on the cross, it's saying he's the, he's the veil torn. He's the one that allows us to go straight to God. Jesus is the way to God. Listen to this, Hebrews chapter 10. It says, uh, it says and so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter into heaven's most holy place because, the blood, uh, because of the blood of Jesus, by his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. <coughs> a great high priest who rules over God's house. That's Jesus. It says, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Do you understand what the scripture says? Because Christ died, and that veil's been torn, because he was torn in our place, we can go right to God. Luke wants us to believe, listen, that we can right now, no matter how bad you've been, no matter how much you've struggled today, right now you can draw near to God. Why? Because of Jesus. In verse 46, this is the last thing that Jesus says. It says, when Jesus cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. <laughs> you know, in a very real sense, crucifixion didn't kill Jesus. Jesus let his life go. In fact, Jesus said this is what he would do in John chapter 10. 
He said, the Father loves me because I sacrificed my life and so I take it back again. No one takes my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily for I have the authority to lay it down when I want and also to take it up again for this is what my Father has commanded. You know what this means? You know what this tells us? Jesus is the willing provider for that access to God. There is nothing about God that would say to us, stay away. Nothing about the God of the New Testament, the God of the Bible that would say to us, stay away. Christ on the cross doesn't say stay away. He says, draw near. Believe. What was the first thing Jesus said on the cross? What's the verse 34 say? Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's what he said. Do you believe? Do you believe that you can choose? Do you, do you believe that you yourself are guilty and Jesus himself is innocent? Do, do you believe in the reality of his kingdom, that even death can't stop him from being king and paradise is what he died to give us? Do you believe that you can draw near to God because that's what the cross guarantees? I'm going to ask the music team to come back up and I'm going to ask the ushers to put the uh, elements of communion on either side of me on the stair steps, if they don't mind, please. what we're going to do is in just a minute we're going to continue worshiping through song but also taking the time to go to the Lord's table to remember. Now, now this is something really important to understand. The Bible says that um, this, these elements, this little bit of cracker unleavened bread, it is unleavened bread, <laughs> this, this bit of grape juice, crushed grape, these things represent Christ's broken body and spilt blood on the cross. And he, he, he's the one who established that we do this in remembrance of him. And it's interesting that he would say, I want you to do this. Because one, of course, it, it points back to the Passover and we could preach on that a whole other sermon. But also, it's, it's like as if he, he's saying, I want you to ingest this. I want you to take this in as that which nourishes you what gives you life. So that when you're remembering, you're not just going, yeah, okay, I remember, but you're going, Lord, this is what gives me life. Your death brings me life. I believe. This is why the Bible says you should examine yourself before you take communion, that you don't take it in an unworthy manner. Now, we, we, we're, we're called to believe that we're unworthy people. Right? We, we see that. The criminals saw that. We should see that. We're unworthy people. We look at Jesus. He's the standard. We're unworthy people. But we, it's not about not being unworthy people. It's about taking it in an unworthy manner, which would be taking it as less than it is, not seeing it as the very source of our life. Do you believe that he's the king? Do you believe that you can draw near? If you do, we invite you as we sing these songs to, to get your elements of communion. You can come up, get a bit of 
uh, cracker, get a bit of juice, go back to your seat, hold your element to the end, we'll partake together. But you have a choice to make now. You know, the very first convert that we had, the very first person that came to Christ at Servant Church was when we were first, just a home Bible study. That's all we were. We were just a, a, a group in our house. And it was Good Friday. Paul Dean was there. He might remember this. And it was Good Friday. And I mentioned that, listen, we're going to take communion, and you have a choice to believe. And there was a young man there named J.P., who I'd been staying up with till after midnight every Friday night for the last six weeks before this time. And he was, he was a brilliant man uh, asking gazillion, a gazillion questions. And he just was kind of, again, waiting for that zap. And I said to him, when I said to you tonight, you have a choice. You can choose to believe. You have a choice. You can choose to believe. And it could be the first thing you do as a believer is take communion with us tonight. So examine yourself. If you, if you need to, to confess sin that God's shown you, confess it. If you've never prayed to God before, this might be the time to say, Lord, I believe all the things that we read tonight. Hold your portion to the end and then we'll partake together. Let's worship.